0: This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, if you were with us last week, um, you know that or Paul's. we were just in chapter 6 and Paul was talking to them about uh, sexual immorality and why it doesn't fit with their lifestyle as Christians. Now, if you weren't here, then you don't know that. And it's okay, today works anyway. Um, But as we talk about these things, Paul is beginning to drill down into the lives and hearts, the motivation of believers who are living in a city that's real hip and cosmopolitan and cool and slick, and it is saturated with sex. It's hard to imagine a culture saturated with sex. But that's where they lived. And so Paul's instruction to them is, pretty poignant for us as well. We said last week that the church in Corinth was, uh, it had a tendency to be polarized. Uh, If we were in a political debate that was polarized, that would help us understand that. But they had a tendency to kind of hold an extreme view, whatever the view was. So we said that because their culture was polarized, when it came to the issue of sex, some people indulged. We heard about that last time, about sexual immorality and actually visiting prostitutes as a regular practice. But in response to that, others completely ignored sex. Some would accelerate their involvement and others would pull back from it. Some were libertines. Hey, live live life to the fullest. You only go around once. And others became legalists. And so this opposite kind of reaction happened. And people were polarized. Well, last week he talked to those who were indulging in sexual immorality. Today, he's going to start addressing those who are reacting to that uh, lack of discipline. He's going to talk to those who have an issue with sex. So let's start reading. If you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're using one of the borrowed uh, hard, hardcover Bibles there, the blue ones, it's page 1132. Or you can just follow along. But the first point is this that Paul's going to make a clear. Oh, thank you. And I should remind you uh, if you have a smartphone, um, this is our little commercial here. If you have a smartphone and you use the U version, and many of you do, I know I do, you should know that starting today, we're on U version. If you open the Bible app, U version, and you go under events, Um, you can look for us. If you enable your location, then it'll find us pretty much. It knows where you're sitting. Um, And once you open it, okay, yeah, (laughs) it's scary. Hey, God knows, but now all of a sudden the app knows. Okay, Uh, so, but what you'll find once you get there is actually our entire bulletin is there. Uh, All the announcements are there if you forgot one or whatever. Uh, All the passages that we're going to be looking at are already loaded there. Uh, so if you, if you open up your, you, you, it may ask you if you, want, if you will enable locations, say yes, and then they'll track you for the rest of your life. Uh, but no, um, but everything is in here, and I think you might enjoy, uh, by the way, once we've gotten started, you can put in your own notes if you want, and they will be saved for you for next time. So really cool, and I appreciate George. Way to go, buddy. Uh, good job getting us lined up. So um, if some of you would try that, and uh, let us know how it worked or didn't work, and, uh, so we can always improve things. Right. Well, okay, so here we are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, starting in verse 1, we read this. Now, for the matters that I wrote to you about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Please, thank you. (laughs) So afraid somebody was going to say amen. Amen. you understand why. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have, his, have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The first point that we're going to make, that Paul's going to make, is that there is a place for sex. There is a place for sex, and it's in marriage. Now, if you're here today and you're a single, I want to suggest, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I'm going to ask you to track with us anyway. Or if you have been married and now you're currently single again, I'm going to invite you to track with me anyway. Because next week, we're going to address sex and marriage and singleness. Paul goes right there next. So next week, we're going to talk to you specifically about singleness. This morning, as we talk about sex in marriage, it still applies to singles in a lot of ways. First of all, we all benefit when marriages are strong, whether we're in one or not. So I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you to kind of listen with some kind of, just kind of tuck it away this morning if you're single. We're going to talk to you, and I'm going to ask the, those that are married next week to listen closely in as we talk about that next week. So now Paul's beginning to address those who are like overreacting to this sexual immorality that's everywhere. And their overreaction was kind of interesting. Instead of encouraging sexual immorality, they were saying, no sex. That's the best way to be spiritual, no sex. Even in marriages, no sex. Just live celibate. Stay away from all of that worldly stuff. Now, I don't know about you, when I read this, do do you get concerned? He says, now, for the matters I wrote to you. By the way, up until this point, he's been reacting to things that he's been hearing about the church. Right now, he's beginning to address the things that they actually wrote to him about. So apparently, Corinth wrote him a letter. In fact, there were several letters that went back and forth, copies of which we do not have. And one of those missing letters is a letter where he wrote them and and they wrote him and they said, hey, by the way, what about this issue? And before we beat up on the Corinthians, because sometimes it's easy to beat up on them, I will say this, at least they were asking questions. They were asking, how should my life line up with what you're teaching? How should my life line up with what God's Word says? So here's, here's the point. Paul is talking to believers, and there's this overreaction, but I find it a little unsettling. It's, he says, now for the things I wrote about you, wrote, that you wrote to me about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman. What? <laughs> Some of you who really like the idea of sex are thinking, What? I'm going to try really hard this morning to not paint that as all men because I know that's not the case. But it would be easy to make the joke, right, that the guys and the girls like the, like the video. But it almost sounds, is, is anybody surprised by the fact that he would say, oh, it would be good to not have sex? It, does that surprise anybody else besides me? Is anybody disappointed? <laughs> okay, oh, now you're not raising your hand. Okay. This is the funny thing about talking about sex because everybody wants to be here, but nobody wants to respond. <laughs> okay. So I want you to notice that in the NIV, that phrase is in quotes. We don't really look at punctuation all that much, but today it's actually kind of important. There were no quotation marks in Greek, but that displays that it was the opinion of those that were making the, doing the NIV translation that there's something special about that phrase. Do you re- remember previously in studies where Paul quoted slogans that were floating around Corinth? When he would say, hey, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. we said that was a slogan that they were often, and then so he would repeat the slogan, and then he would respond to it. Well, I think the the translators of the NIV have done the right thing, and I agree with their interpretation, that what Paul's doing right there is he's quoting them. That was the slogan that was going around Corinth. It's good for men not to have sexual relationships with women. It's good that nobody has sex. He's quoting them. And now he's going to respond to them. Now, what you need to understand is that it's a little awkward because at this point, Paul was single. And later in this discussion, he's going to say, I think being single is pretty good. And in fact, he's going to say, I wish some of you were single. I'm going to encourage some of you who are single to stay that way. He's actually, if, if if he has to come down on it, he's actually coming down in favor of singleness. They knew that because they knew him. They knew his personal lifestyle. So Paul's going to be really careful today to address this extreme polarization and bring things back into balance. There's a lot of things that are true about sex, but this is just one of them. It has a tendency to prompt us to respond in extreme ways. Paul's going to take these folks who are acting or responding extreme and pull them in close together. So he goes on. He says... But, but, since immorality is happening, it is occurring, uh, we should kind of, again, I'm trying to help you understand the context. In Greco-Roman times, the typical attitude for, about sex was simple. A man would marry a woman, she would be his wife, she, he would have sex with her so that he would have a legal heir. To enjoy the fun aspects of sex, he simply went and found prostitutes. That's what they were for. Prostitutes were for fun, and your wife was for an heir. Again, another extreme view. So when Paul says, because sexual immorality is occurring, it's not hypothetical, it's not theoretical, it's rampant in their culture. You thought it was just us. He says, because it's happening... Each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife and each woman with her husband. And so what he's saying is that there is a proper place for this. Not just for having heirs, but for all of the comforts and joys and delights of sexual intimacy. There's a place for it. And it's to be enjoyed with your own husband, with your own wife. In fact, the wording there is so interesting. It's, it's like, not, not that you own one another, but you guys are a team. You're a pair. You have one. That's what th- you are in each other's lives for. So I think the point would be that, you know, uh, there is nothing. I'm a little stuck there, Steve. I might need some help. Advance it one. There is absolutely nothing wrong with encouraging abstinence until marriage. In fact, that's a good thing. Abstinence until marriage is great. But there's everything wrong with abstinence in marriage. Completely different concept here. He says it should be happening. So in verses 1 and 2, he says, look, there's a place for sex. Now, again, I'm going to address all of you who are not in a marriage right now. And what I want to tell you is, I understand, as Paul would, that we live in a culture that treats sex like it's simply another human appetite and that you deserve, in fact, it's unhealthy to not have it met. We don't have time this morning to unpack it. We talked about it last week, but the scriptures teach something different. The scriptures teach that God invented sex and that he gave it as a gift for a purpose, now, like any other gift, you can misuse it. And by God's grace, people misuse sex, and it still can be used in the right way too. It's not broken forever, praise God. But what he says is, it's actually intended for something quite specific and quite glorious. And if you have the courage, if you have the will, the self-discipline, if you will obey his teachings about this, then you will be free to enjoy sex in the context that he intended it. You don't have to believe him. In a room like this size, many of us would have already failed. If there's one thing I know about sex is that nobody is pure in their sex life. We all struggle in thought or deed. We have all failed somehow. That's just the way it goes. There's always a way to redeem it. But part of the way to redeem sex is to understand what it was for in the first place. Which is what comes next. Verses 3 through 4, he's going to talk to us a little bit about the joy in the joy of sex in marriage. Believe it or not, God does care whether there's joy. Let's keep reading. In verse 3, He says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have the authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. You see, God intended sex to be a bonding agent, something that connects two people. Now, it's true, you know, if you have sex with somebody, you might feel close to them at least while you're there. His point is that, no, the bond is intended to be much deeper. But like many bonding agents, you don't apply it just once. It's applied over and over and over. And in the process of being applied, that bond cures. It kind of sets up. It begins to really work into the materials until the two really begin to be one flesh. That's what Genesis talked about. When God invented creation, made creation, and he, he, he formed Adam, formed Eve from him. A really unique relationship between these two. Didn't just make Eve out of the dirt just like Adam. And then he said, a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two will become one flesh. It's really interesting, that term, one flesh. There's a, uh, <laughs> there's a, a literary term, a literary device called a synecdoche. That's one that you haven't heard about in high school uh, English, perhaps. But a select a key, but really, it's where you use one, a part of something to describe the whole. We do it all the time, right? Somebody says to you, hey, get your head in the game. But we all know that they don't want just your head in the game, <laughs> right? We want all of you in the game. But, but when we're describing, get your head in the game. Or you say, get your butt in here, okay? I'm not interested in just your backside getting in here. That would be strange. Get all of you in here. He says the two will become one flesh. What he means is the two of you will become one you. That's the intent. The truth of the matter is it doesn't happen when you have sex once. But when sex becomes a regular part of that married relationship, it has that effect of bonding kind of interesting. He says that the husband should fulfill his wife and the wife should fulfill her husband. If sex joins two people, bonds them, then joy, joy, when they serve each other, that's a source of joy. Again, in our world, sex is seen as something that that fulfills us. And that we're interested in us being satisfied. And that attitude filters right into every one of our marriages. We still have a sin nature. And we're interested in us being served. That might be normal, but it's not the best. Paul says the way it was meant to be to work was that you're interested in serving the other one. And that's where the greatest joy comes from. Most marital counseling, you say, well, you know, okay, well, I will serve her, you know. If she serves me. And then they go back and forth and they're waiting for each other. We all know what that feels like on the inside. So all Paul is saying is that the joy comes when we train ourselves to serve the other. It's really nice when they're also interested in serving us. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the ideal. We also see that he says they're supposed to fulfill this obligation to one another. And and this is a tough concept. That sexual oneness, being together, is, is an obligation. It's not a word we like. Luckily, it's not just an obligation. It's also a joy and a privilege. But he says it's an obligation in this covenant of marriage. It's not a tool that's just optional or nice. If you've been married for any length of the time, like, in fact, if you've been married for a while, wouldn't it be fun to just go ahead and start snickering at the young ones? because of the things we know. <clears throat> For instance, you remember perhaps when we were younger, like as as a young married man, I remember like sex was pretty much like yeah, like yeah, thinking about it pretty much, I don't know. Am I awake? Yes. You know, all, right? And it's hard to imagine it being any other way. But you know, we enter seasons of our life where it's it's not that it goes away, but you know what you realize that you got little kids and you got work and you got it. And before you know it, it can slip in its priority. It slips to something like, you know, I don't know when that's going to happen, maybe whatever. And it's not just one person, there are so many other demands. You realize early in our history, some of the pilgrim families were actually commanded to take Sunday off, not just for worship. So they had a day that they could be quiet long enough to maybe be intimate, because we needed babies to have a country. The truth is, it's not automatic, but it is still an obligation of a covenant, a covenant in marriage. It's something that husbands and wives actually owe each other. Now, do not look at your spouse and make this point at this point. Don't do that. This this should not be wielded against each other, okay? Instead, it's an opportunity to realize, just to make it personal, it's something I owe. My spouse. That's what Paul's saying. But the obligation is not a burden. The obligation is to bring joy. How can I bring joy? The other thing I'd say about this passage is that the mutuality that's found in the Bible's teaching about marriage is unthinkable in the ancient world. This idea of the two people both serving one another and trying to please one another, absolutely unthinkable. In Jewish culture, oh, they really loved sex. I mean, they encouraged sex. In fact, if you've been to a Jewish wedding, I mean, you know, kind of the couple sent upstairs and everybody else stays downstairs and parties, and they'll talk about what's going on upstairs. I mean, they just love the idea of sex because children were such a key part of their culture. Jewish women were also often chasing their men, but not because they cared so much for the man. As much as they knew that every child they had, it was like social security for them. Men pursuing women, we all seem to kind of understand that drive. And it's, again, so self-centered rather than other-centered. This description stood in absolute stark contrast to everything that existed in that culture. And actually, today, too. In fact, what the Bible has to say about marriage isn't really found in 1 Corinthians 7. Probably a better, better, more full theology of marriage is found in Ephesians 5. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you flip over to Ephesians 5 quickly. It's page 1159. We're just going to read this passage. I'm not going to comment on it, but I want it to be ringing in our ears. Let's uh, start reading together in verse 21. Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. Submit to one another... Out of reverence for Christ. All the rest of the teaching is prefaced by that command. Submit to one another. Wives, submit to your, husband, your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I realize I can hear you getting all tense, ladies. Because this has been so abused. In fact, in a room this size, there might not be one guy, one of us, who's gotten this right. And still, God's ideal is that a wife is able to submit, not not, not in a negative sense, but work together with her husband because she knows something. And what she knows comes in the next verse, verse 25. Husbands. But they, care for, they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. And now Paul quotes that passage in Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one. The two become one person. This is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife and he, as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Have you ever noticed how older couples start looking alike? <laughs> For some of you, that's really cute, and some of you, that's terrifying. <laughs> More importantly, have you noticed, and maybe if you've been in a marriage long enough, you've noticed that you start doing things the same, thinking the same, How long has it been since you finished a sentence for each other, right? Or you just go, and you both say the same thing at the same time. You know, we think of that as cute. At the same time, God intends for that to be happening on every level. That's his goal for marriage. That somebody kind of knows how I would react. What I'm probably thinking. How that might have made me feel. Somebody actually knows that. And I know how she might react and how she's feeling. If you're a young couple and you kind of wonder, how do couples stay married 35, 45, 55 years? There's always a challenge to it. But for the marriages that have been built with this idea in mind, there does come a time when it's really hard to imagine going anywhere else. We have so much in common, so much together. We're just getting started. I remember hearing people talk about that. But even knowing that it was possible, experiencing it is a whole different matter. Well, let's finish up. You know, this idea of being one... It's all throughout the scriptures, even in the Old Testament. If you know anything about the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, it's, it's practically erotic literature. Okay, if if you want to read that to your spouse, you know, go for that. Yeah, that's you could try that. But in Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, in chapter two, six, 16, it's the bride speaking now, and she says, "My beloved is mine, and I am his." Even in in this most sensual part of Scripture, describing the love between a, a young bride and her husband, this idea of mutuality and being one is at the very center of it. 1 Peter 3 says this, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them as with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Weaker partner, nothing to do with physical. It's actually more the idea of fine china, special stuff, the stuff that's so valuable, it's treated with greater care. So what Paul says is, not only is there a place for sex, there is, and it's in marriage, but he says there's a joy to sex. It's supposed to be perhaps one of the most meaningful experiences in our lives, not because of just the biology, but because of all that can be bonded together along with the biology. Well, Paul lives in the same world you do, so now he's going to talk about a lack of sex. Okay? There's an issue, there's a problem, and that's a lack of sex. And he covers that in verse 5. He says this, Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He says, don't Deprive each other. The the wording here is kind of interesting. What he really seems to be saying is stop. Don't continue defrauding each other. In fact, the word he uses, deprive, is the exact same word he used in chapter 6 when he talked about taking each other to court. And he says, wouldn't it be better just to be cheated? That's the word he uses here. And he says stop as though it's already happening. So yes, Paul knows what's happening in your home. And what he says is stop cheating each other. Stop depriving each other. Is there ever a time to not have sex? Good job, man. Thank you. Again, I was worried that you are going to shout out. Um, But now, like Paul's going to do throughout this entire passage, Paul is working with extremes. And he says, no, no, not that, not that. The answer is here in the middle. And then even with that answer, there's always offered an exception. Throughout, the, when he talks about sex now, and then he's going to talk about singleness next week. We're going to talk about divorce and remarriage the week after that. All of these passages, as he gives instruction, he always gives um, a chance. Sometimes things don't work out, even the way we would hope. And so this morning he offers an exception. The truth is, there are times when we are, okay, as married couples, when it's okay to deprive one another of a sexual oneness. When, when are those times? Well, first he says, by mutual consent. He says, unless by mutual consent. You see, mutual consent would hint at the fact that there has to be a conversation about sex. Oh, that's awkward. And yet the whole idea is here, wait, wait, wait. if we're going to not be together for some length of the time or for some, we should. we have to talk about that. Mutual consent also seems to indicate that there's an agreement, not just a conversation, but there's agreement. This is what's going to happen. Yes, yes, we're both good with that. Yes, we're both good with that. There has to be a conversation and an agreement about sex, married couples, like, wow, is that how it works in your home? Or does it just sort of kind of not or it does and whatever and it's like, and it's almost like we just act like, you know. Do you know why we act like that? Because we all probably learned about sex in a shameful way. It's sad, but we all learned about sex in some kind of a shameful way. We have shame attached to it. And because of that, even now as grown-ups, we do this. <laughs> We're embarrassed. When... And Paul's saying, you have to have a conversation about it. Hey, what's the plan for tomorrow? Well, we have to go do some shopping. I'm going to wash the car. That's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) What's the plan for tomorrow? We have to have a conversation about it, an agreement. He also says, for a time. He says, if for a time, and then later you come back together. There needs to be a plan. A conversation, agreement. Agreement about what? A plan. There's actually a plan in place. It's fun to make jokes, but you know what? I think Paul's trying to communicate that there's actually a greater value here. If we're tempted as married couples to think of sex as, like, just icing on the cake, you know, if everything's going great, and Paul is saying, actually, it's a fundamental element that goes into building your relationship. And it is as necessary now as it was the first few years you were married. Lastly, he says, devote yourselves to prayer. Wow. There needs to be prayer for sex. Some of you have been praying for sex. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Singles are praying for so- God to provide somebody. Marriages are praying that we could have sex or praying that He leaves me alone or whatever, right? I mean, you're, <laughs> there's been a lot of prayer offered about sex, but not like what Paul intends. The truth of the matter is that sex is a sacred activity. We don't think of it that way. Why don't we? Because we're buying into everything that our culture and our flesh says when actually sex is supposed to be a sacred activity. On the back of your notes page, I listed a bunch of resources. They're not all equally recommended, but all of them I would say have some value if a title or something stands out to you. But there's one or two there that use the word sacred along with the word sex. Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Sex or Sacred Marriage. Outstanding study. If you're a a reader of books, get a book. If you want to go to a website, there's a few websites or a few blogs. But the point is this. God intends for our intimate lives to actually be part of our sacredness. There needs to be prayer over our sex lives. It needs to be a part of it. And lastly, he says, so that Satan will not tempt you. Okay, this is so easy to abuse, isn't it? (laughs) Look at like the the video. Like, you know, hey, babe, you know, (laughs) you don't want me to struggle. To which the answer should be, I think struggling is your issue. That's fair. But how do we explain what he says here? Because I'm going to suggest that The temptation is for either spouse, whether it's the one. There's always somebody who wants more sex than the other. There's always a a, a bigger appetite and a lesser appetite in most marriages. It's just the way humans are. But for both appetites, there's a danger that Satan will tempt. On the one side, oh, get it fulfilled somewhere else. But on the other side, I don't really need it. It's not a big deal. You know, I said, I told you I loved you when we got married. If it changes, I will let you know. That might be practically kind of where you land right now. Paul's saying, but that is not what your marriage is supposed to be. You don't understand. We've been married 30 years. I don't care. Work harder at this to keep a passion in there, which kind of takes you back to prayer. But anyway, that's another whole story. The idea is this. There needs to be respect for sex. It isn't just a recreation. It is a fundamental piece of keeping your marriage healthy. Now, some of you, many of you perhaps, any of us have struggled in this area. We have struggled in this area. You see, something went wrong, there's been a, a past hurt or injury. There's been a, a present failure in our, some aspect of our lives. So, something has gone wrong. And suddenly, there, where there should be this warm hearth of, of enjoyment, there's just embers. Or maybe it's, it's just flat cold. And now the idea of somehow rekindling that just seems ridiculous. And Paul would say, you need to remember that it's a key element Not for enjoyment, but for oneness. His goal is oneness. So you don't understand. Now it's really, really awkward. And guess what that means? It means there has to be a conversation. I don't know. I don't really. Conversations are awkward. There's got to be an agreement. You don't understand. We never agree about this. And so I just want to suggest to you that if your sex life in your marriage is currently not as healthy as you wish, Actually, sex is still doing exactly what God intended it to do. It's pushing you. It's nudging you. It's tapping you. Uh, You need a conversation about that. You need to tell him about that. You have something that you need to say to her. Because it works best when those things are cleared away. God actually knew exactly what he was doing when he made sex. It's not a byproduct. It's not some, just a toy for fun. It's not something that we can just get as much. That's not at all what God intended. You want to use it that way? You go ahead. And guess what? If this was an appropriate setting, some of you could tell the stories about how that just did not work. Some of you know it didn't work, and yet you still go back to that because somehow you can't break that habit, that pattern. There's grace. There's forgiveness. In fact, that's what Paul says in this last, path, this last verse as we close. In verse 5, he says this, I say this as a concession and not as a command, but I wish that all of you were as I am. And he's talking about singleness. And he's saying, it's, this isn't a command, but you know, when I think about the tensions that you're wrestling with, sometimes I wish all of you were like me. He's saying, I don't have this issue. And some of you are thinking, nah, I get his point. But... And this is what's so important. But each of you has your own gift from God. Maybe you're sitting next to that person today. Each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. What he's saying is every marriage is unique. Every marriage has its own challenges, its own unique flavor. Broken or not, struggling or not, And he says the key to fixing that is to pursue oneness, to see it as worthy of chasing. Every marriage has unique strengths and weaknesses, but every marriage has one thing, at least one thing in common, sex. That's what God intended. It's not just a byproduct. It's a key element. So... This morning, I'm talking to married couples, and and you're singles, you're getting off the hook. And next week, we're going to talk to singles, and the marrieds, well, actually, won't be off the hook, but we'll have a different focus. But for this morning, there's really just two ideas. For married couples, the encouragement is, number one, enjoy what God has given you. And at the very same time, obey what God has told you. We make lots of jokes, and it's kind of funny and fun. But for just a moment, sex isn't supposed to be a serious thing. It's fundamental. It's critical. It's core to what it means to become one. So I encourage you, don't buy into what the world's selling. Find another couple that you trust. Begin to share and challenge and encourage each other. Singles, pray for the married couples that you know. You think being single and celibate is hard? This challenges every every one of us to our core. What he's saying is, I don't care how badly you are off right now, I don't know how much you're failing, I don't know how go back to it again and work on it. Because it's a fundamental element in every marriage. Okay? Let's pray. We need to pause for a second and just give you a chance chance to digest. See, we, we joke a little bit about this, but it's no joking matter. The feelings that we have that are connected to this relationship are probably the most intense feelings we ever feel, except for maybe as parents. And so as we pause... I want to give you a chance to talk to God about your marriage. Specifically, the role of sexual intimacy in your marriage. Remind, remind yourself that God, he, God he, he invented it on purpose. He knows how it's supposed to work. Tell him that you know that he intends for us to enjoy one another. It's not just an option. It's not just icing on the cake, but that he actually intended it to be a, a key part, not the only part. Thank him for the fact that there are times when we don't enjoy sexual intimacy, but even those times are entered into with purpose. And when there's a break in our relationship, it's, it's so that we will pursue oneness again. And all, every marriage is in a process of learning more about what it means to be one. Father God, I pray for the marriages in this room. I ask that your hand of blessing would be on each and every one. And I ask that you would so lead each man and woman, each husband and wife, that they would be willing to trust you enough to set aside whatever injury and pain they have experienced, to turn toward each other again and again and again, and work out those things that come between them. That, That each marriage would know that being one sexually is an important goal. It's part of what it means to be one flesh. So I ask you to heal marriages to restore them. Every marriage has the potential to display hope for every other person around them. And God, each of us individually, we're broken. And that brokenness shows up uh, sometimes most glaringly in our sexual identity. And so we simply ask you again to cleanse us and to forgive us and to purify what is here so that we could serve your purposes. May we know what it means to be one. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org